If today is day number one for you, if you've never been to LifePoint uh, before, I'll give you a couple of tools that'll help you navigate uh, the morning. If you'll take your smartphone out right now, open up your camera app and point it at one of the QR codes on one of the chairs that's in front of you, or you can go to your web browser, whatever you use, Google Safari, and type in lpguest.com, take you to the same spot. The reason for that, two things, there are message notes, they're interactive that are there as I teach this morning. You can follow along there, type your own notes in there if you want to, email those to yourself just as a reminder of something maybe that God speaks to you uh, this morning. The second thing is that there's a digital guest card that's available there. We have five ministries that are listed on the bottom that we're already partnered with. But if you'll fill that guest card out, take you less than a minute, choose one of those five, whichever one's closest uh, to you, We'll give an extra $5 donation in your honor to the ministry that you choose just to give you the opportunity to make a difference in somebody else's uh, life today. So you have joined us in week number four of a series that we're calling Playlist um, as we're looking at specific psalms because they help us deal with the breadth of human emotion. They help us process uh, love and fear, worry, anger, sadness, all those kinds of things. The Psalms help us do that. That's why it's called, or the Psalms are called the prayer book of the human race. They've been called a complete anatomy of the human soul. So every week we have said it this way, that God writes the lyrics of our souls in the Psalms. And that's why we constantly are finding our way uh, back to them. So this morning, as we take a step, we're going to look at the first of the Psalms uh, today. And so I guess I'll start with a question this morning. Are you happy? Are you happy? You know, there's, um, there's a lot of research that's been done across peoples and centuries about happiness. I mean, if, if I were sitting in your shoes and somebody asked me that question, I would probably say, well, I mean, specifically, generally, like, how do you want me to, to answer that question? And, and there's, like I said, tons of social research that's been done, 30 reasons why Australians are the happiest people, right, on the planet, or 10 reasons why Scandinavians, you know, 10 characteristics of whatever. And so what's been done more recently is some mega research has been done, taking all of these lists, all of these, uh, the social research has been, and they've kind of boiled it down to five things that seem to be similar across cultures, peoples, and across time. Five things that um, are characteristic of happy people. Now, these, this is not a Christian list, but it is a Christian list. Whenever you read through it, I'll give you the five things. I'm just gonna run through them really, really fast. Number one is people who are happy practice gratitude. They are content with the things that they have more so than they are with the things that they want. I put a link in the message notes there to a study uh, that was done by Harvard. It's a fascinating study on the practice, the intentional practice, of gratitude. Second thing, they're relationally connected. You know, um, as a church, we have a core value. I talk about it all the time called authentic community. We say authentic community means that we're family and our expression of that, right, are life groups, smaller groups of people that get together during the week to do two things, connect relationally, take the next step in their spiritual journey. We start our summer term of life groups today. And again, there's a link in the app notes for you to our digital catalog. It's brand new this term where you can filter and search it by geography uh, or by day of the week. Our team has done a great job pulling that together. We need to be relationally connected. The way the study says it is that um, people who are happy learn, they don't just do it automatically, but they learn to trust other people. Number three, they're mindful. They learn to live in the present moment 
more than they do in what could be a present moment in somebody else's lives. In other words, they don't compare their sales, themselves to other people all the time, i.e., we all need to get off of our phones, right? That's what that one means. Um, the next one um, is they're resilient. They learn to serve and suffer in the context of hope. Serve and suffer in the context of hope. And the last one is that they have purpose. They have forward momentum in their lives in the belief that they are heading towards something that is more, uh, more meaningful. In two weeks, we'll start a brand new series on mission and purpose. So who do you know right now in your life that is looking for that, that's looking for mission and purpose? It'd be a great opportunity to invite them to come. Those five things seem to be the characteristics of happy people generally across culture. Here's the way that one of the Psalm writers says it. Psalm 32, 11. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad. You righteous, sing all of you who are upright. Now, rejoice in the Lord and be glad. That is not a suggestion. That's an imperative. We have a God who commands us to be happy, to be glad, to be joyful. Now, if you're sitting there with the cynicism meter, right, it starts to, it starts to go up and you're like, oh, here we go. Now you're going to tell me I've got to fake it. I've got to be phony. Put the plastic face. Not at all. Psalm 32, the verse that I read there from the chapter or the chapter from the verse that I just read to you is a psalm of lament. It's a psalm about sadness. The Bible is not calling us to, to phone it in, right? To, uh, to be some sort of pseudo kind of happy. Rather, remember that the psalms are poetic language. So this is something that should be generally true. How does that work? Think about it like taking a, wrong, a long road trip, right? There's going to be a lot of moments as you're driving on a long road trip. There's going to be a lot of gas moments, brake moments. There's going to be a lot of traffic, a lot of slowdowns. But generally speaking, when you drive a long way, what do you do? You put the cruise control on. And generally speaking, there's going to be a normal speed on cruise control that you're traveling. And I think what the writer of Psalms is saying to us, that the cruise control of our lives should be a sense of gladness among moments and seasons of sadness and slowing down and gas and brake and traffic and all those kinds of things that happen the normal pattern of our lives should be gladness. And maybe you're sitting there thinking, I think happiness is an urban myth, Dean. It's an urban legend, right? You grew up with urban legends. Um, I remember some of them I grew up with. Uh, Mr. Rogers was a Navy SEAL. I remember thinking, I've been told that a lot when I was a kid. People only use 10% of their brains. Remember that one? Every seven seconds, men think about food. What were you thinking, right? What was wrong with you, right? I don't even think men even think every seven seconds. I'm not sure, I'm not confident that even happens, right? So here's what we're gonna learn today in Psalm chapter one. It's called the Gateway Psalm because it's the first of all the Psalms. We're gonna learn first what happiness is not. Secondly, we're gonna learn um, what happiness is like. And then thirdly, we're gonna learn how to get it. What happiness is not, what happiness is like, and how to get it from the first three of the verses in Psalm chapter one. So look over there, Psalm one says, um, says this. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, who nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat uh, of scoffers. Happiness is not about what happens. That's kind of how we tend to feel about it, right? What does he say? Walks not, stands not, sits not. 
And in his writing, I think that's a metaphor for all of movement. There's very little that we do that is walks not, stands not, sits, right? That you're not doing in those three things. And he says, listen, you want to avoid a place where you end up in mental misery, that you sit in the seat of a scoffer, that your life is characterized by this general sense of cynicism. And for us as human beings, we know that we, we tend to feel like happiness is totally dependent upon what we have. So in our minds, there's a correlation between um, happiness and income, right? And so as income rises, happiness rises. The only problem with that is research does not prove that to be true. Rather, it is the other thing. The, the number one corollary between a rise in happiness is an equivalent rise in what I said earlier, relationships. As a matter of fact, people who are the most happy correlate the value of human relationships worth over $100,000. Think about that. So when the service is over today, come up, introduce yourself to me. I'll be your friend for $60,000 and save you a cool, I'll save you a cool 40 grand, right? It's, it's the way we think about things. We think, oh, it's gotta be, it's gotta be income, right? But it's not. Relational connectivity is important. Think about the people that you know who are the happiest. Are they always the highest income earners? No. Think biblically for just a minute. Think about the Apostle Paul, New Testament. Financially, dirt poor. Relationally, filthy rich. So, it's important for us to understand, and especially if you're here today and you're a graduate, and you're gonna be leaving home this year. Happiness is possible, but it's not, it's not normal in our culture. You're going to leave home, whether you're going to go um, into the workforce or you're going to go uh, off to college and get into school somewhere. And more than likely, what statistics say are going to happen is that as you wander, you're going to walk away from faith some. Your relationship with God is going to be diminished at some, and you're going to stub your toe unnecessarily more than, more than you would have to. We will do everything in our power to help you stay relationally connected to God. It is the only formula for consistent gladness over time. Now, are you going to learn some lessons? Are you going to make some mistakes? Absolutely. But in the same context, you're, you have the opportunity for your relationship with God to flourish during this season and for gladness to be up and to the right in, um, in your life. And you say, well, okay, dude, what is that? What would that be like if that were to happen in my life? And the writer of Psalms, he doesn't leave us, he doesn't leave us wondering. Look at verse 3, the beginning of it. He says, he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields fruit in its season, and its leaf uh, does not wither. He says, happiness is like a tree. And not just any tree, but a tree that's planted by streams of water. And sometimes because of erosion, for trees that are planted by streams of water, we get to see the difference between the tree above ground and the tree below ground. I'll show you a picture uh, of one of those. And what to me is interesting that he chooses this kind of tree is because I think he has seen this kind of picture. Because what you see is there's above ground and there's below ground. So above ground, the trees that you and I see, right? Central Ohio, it's springtime right now. Trees are budding, right? They're heading into summer, the season of growth. In the fall, they're gonna lose their leaves. They're going to a period of dormancy in the winter. But no matter what's going on above ground, what is always going on below ground is that the roots 
are headed towards more water. Deeper water calls for deeper roots. So no matter what happens above ground, if it gets dry and arid and the bark starts to crack, what that does, it just sends a message below ground that the roots need to go find deeper. They need to go find deeper, more water, more resources. What do you think the Psalm writer is saying to us? That what we see on the exterior of you, the exterior of me is not nearly as important as what's going on on the interior of me and on the interior of you. The most important thing about you is that you come to know, love, understand, and lean into the love of God given for us by the person of, cross, person of Christ dying on the cross, being miraculously resurrected. The most important thing about me is what's going on on the inside of me. It's not the part of me that you can see or the part of you that I can see. Happiness is like a tree. It's like a tree planted by streams of water, by somebody. It's, it's like a person whose roots are growing deep on the inside. Not, it's not based on what you have, right? It's not based on the things that you and I can, can visibly see. So that brings up some questions. Well, Dean, is God committed to my happiness? It's a great question. It all depends upon what you mean by committed to your happiness. If by, is God committed to your happiness, do you mean that, well, because I'm a Christian, God's going to give me everything I ask for? And the answer to that is no. God didn't even give Jesus everything he asked for. So I'm guessing he's not going to do that for you, right? Or for me, not to mention that you and I living for things, living for stuff, living for the things that we have, it just plays us right into the strategy of the enemy, right? You remember Jesus in the temptation in the wilderness. One of the things that he was offered by the enemy was what? You can have all the kingdoms of the earth. You can have everything you can see, everything you would ever want if you'll just bow down and worship me. A life where you and I focus only on the things that we can have or the things that we can want, it just plays us right into the strategy of the enemy. Well, Dean, if, if God exists, why then does unhappiness exist? And this, again, I will say to our graduates, as some of you who do head off into um, philosophy class uh, this fall at the university level, this, these are some of the questions that you're going to face. There are very intelligent, very bright people um, in the world who, have, who espouse atheism. And they're going to say, well, listen, if God exists, great. Well, why isn't everything always perfect? How can unhappiness exist if, if God exists? It's a tough question. I think Christians would say just the opposite. Because evil exists, then God must exist. Because without God, there really is no evil, right? Without God, there, there really is no sense of morality, a sense of truth, sense of what is right and, and what is wrong. And again, what you're going to hear in philosophy class at the university level, in most classes uh, right now, again, bright people, people, um, atheists like Kitchens and Harris, they're, they're going to say things like, well, wait a minute, the reality, uh, the reality of evil means that, that God can exist. But what we've done is humans have evolved um, to understand that a good sense of morality comes from doing what is best for human flourishing. That's the answer. That we as humans are evolving and have evolved to the place where we're able to have a sense of morality and do good because of where we are. I look around the world, I think, how's that working for us, right? I mean, how far have we, how far have we really made it? 
The problem with that theory is you put 50,000 soldiers on one side of a battle line, you put 50,000 soldiers on the other side of a battle line, and what's, both of them think they're doing what is best for human flourishing. It's, it's, completely, it's completely subjective. So because evil exists, it means that there is an ultimate sense of of morality. It is imprinted upon the souls of men and women that certain things are wrong. That's the reason across peoples, across times, generally speaking, we think things like child abuse, murder, rape are wrong. And the Bible recognizes this. The Bible describes this condition to us. Romans chapter two, verses um, 14 and 15 says, for when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are what? They are a law unto themselves, even though they don't even have a law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse, uh, excuse them. I actually think atheists have more problem. They have more uh, struggle uh, when you think of a belief system with the reality of evil in the world than Christians do. Because those verses say, and we see it to be true across peoples and across times, that there's this general sense of right and wrong. It's imprinted, those verses say, it's imprinted that we are a law unto ourselves. So, so back to the question. Is God committed to my happiness? You, you know this if you're a parent, a teacher, a coach, or a mentor. Are you committed to your child's happiness? Well, yes, yes you are. Does that mean you give the child or the player or the whom, whom, whomever everything they want? No. Unlimited Tootsie Rolls will give a child happy, will make a child happy, right? And sick, right? But any limitation in the number of Tootsie Rolls is always gonna cause rebellion, right? It's always gonna cause a problem. Anytime you limit anything that a child wants. A child, a child can't understand it and it thinks it's too severe and it's, it's, it's awful and horrible, right? And terrible. Why? Because you're the parent, you're the teacher, you're the coach, you're the and you, and you know things that children don't know. And if that's true, if that's true, think about it. God, who is our heavenly father, knows infinitely more than you and I could ever know, right? And so any limitation in our lives is gonna draw a sense of rebellion from our fallenness, from our sinfulness, what we're born into this world with. And it's, we're gonna think it's too severe, that it lasts too long, that it's too painful, that much like children, we're gonna think that it's, it's just absolutely, it's just too much. So that begs another question. Okay, that's reality. How do we get happiness? How do I become a happy person? The psalm writer doesn't leave us, doesn't leave us wondering. Here's what he says in Psalm chapter 1 and verse 2. This is the verse that's tucked in between the verses that we've looked at. He says this, But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Here's the reality is that you and I gain happiness, but we gain happiness backwards. It's backwards. He says, 
on his law, not his laws, not on the particulars of the rules, but on his law, God's kingdom rule in our lives, that he meditates on that, that she meditates, that she thinks on that day and night, that God is the king and I get to be part of his kingdom because of his goodness and grace in my life and that what I have is a relationship with my king. On that law, in that space, in that reality, that's where we live day and night, over and over and over again, day and night. We meditate on this reality. So it makes sense then for us to think about that, um, to think about that, that child-parent um, relationship because you see that um, evidenced all through Scripture, the way that we relate to God. That if we don't have that kind of relationship with the kingdom rule uh, of God in our lives, what we're going to do is we're going to fall into the seat of scoffers. And we're going to become that. We're going to take that spot and we're going to live a cynical, miserable kind of existence. But we don't have to. You see it in the lives of people, like I said, throughout scripture. Take Matthew, who's a tax collector. If anybody could have ever gotten cynical about life, it would have been Matthew. He saw people cheated. He defrauded people. He saw the, uh, the poorest of the poor people in his country be taken advantage of by the Roman Empire, if anybody could have ever gotten cynical, it would have been him. But instead, in quoting Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew says things like, blessed is he who hungers and thirsts after righteousness. Now, the way that you and I think that should be worded is blessed is he who hungers and thirsts after blessedness. Happy is the man who searches after happiness. But that's not what Matthew says. Matthew says, happy is the man who hungers and thirsts after righteousness. In other words, if you aim at righteousness, you get righteousness and you get happiness thrown in, right? You get blessedness thrown in as a bonus. If you aim at happiness, you get neither. We gain happiness backwards. Our spiritual forefathers used to say it this way, aim at heaven and you get earth thrown in. Aim at earth you get neither. We gain happiness, but we gain happiness backwards by focusing on God's kingdom rule and reign in our lives, right? So how does that work practically? Um, if you're here today and you're married, one of the best ways to have a great marriage is to stop making your spouse the top priority in your life. Now, it's not that they're not a priority. They're not the priority. The way that you have an incredible marriage is you make God the ultimate priority in your life. On his law, on his kingdom rule, you meditate day and night. And the more you invest in your relationship with God, a byproduct of investing in your relationship with God is that you have a better marriage because of it. We gain happiness backwards. It comes to us in reverse. And you've seen this in the lives of people, of believers uh, that you know. Uh, last week, I had the, the blessing, the privilege of doing a funeral for one of our members uh, whose name is Grady Evans. I'll throw Grady's picture up here. Maybe it'll jog your uh, memory. Grady and Marie sat right back over here on the right side. He was 88. Uh, he passed away. Maybe you've had the opportunity to meet him. I met Grady whenever I was a college student um, at Ohio State. By the way, all the college students who were up here, the, or the high school uh, seniors who were up here today, and none of them are going to school in Michigan. I think we've done a successful, I think it's been success, right? You know? 
Um, I met Grady when I, was a, when I was a student at Ohio State. He led collegiate ministry in Ohio for 30 years. 30 years. He worked with college campus ministries and college students. And in the process um, of doing that, he planted 14 churches. He was either on the team or the lead planter. Now I want you to think about that for a second. I've helped plant two churches on the team or been the lead and 14 times. The last church that Grady planted, he and Marie started a church when he was 76 years old, inner city of Columbus. He planted a church for individuals who were coming out of incarceration who weren't allowed to attend your everyday normal garden variety churches. He planted a church for those folks. Throughout his lifetime, uh, throughout his ministry, um, Grady would see students, meet students. And I'll say for me, God used him uniquely in my life. He saw something in me in terms of ministry and calling that I didn't see in me. And he consistently invited me to more. One of the things he did throughout his lifetime um, is he bought property, inner city property, property that really probably most folks uh, were not interested in. And as people that he would meet were coming out of being incarcerated, he gave them work to do um, handyman type jobs, uh, anything he could do, he had to upgrade uh, to these properties. And he allowed immigrant families in a lot of cases to live in these properties. When I was, um, when I was a student, I was a junior um, at Ohio State, he uh, asked me to come over to his house for lunch. And food is my love language, especially was when I was in college. And so he asked me came over, to come over to his house for lunch, which I said, absolutely, sign me up, right? Um, so I go over and I should have known because he asked me to come over at like 9.30 in the morning. I should have known something was up and he said we had to go run some errands. So we get in the car, we go run errands. And by errands, what he meant was we were going to these properties and we were gonna meet the people who were there. And as we did, it was, I mean, to a kid from Southern Ohio, my, man, mind was blown. But I watched these people who were incredibly, incredibly grateful to him for giving them a place to live in. We came out of one, it was like a, it's like a duplex. It was more like a quadplex. And there was a, a large uh, group of Hispanic families that were living in this, this, this quadplex. And we got back in the car and Grady said, I'm gonna start a Bible study uh, there. And I hope that Bible study is gonna become a church. And I looked at him and I said, well, Grady, do you speak Spanish? <laughs> and I'll never forget what he said to me. He said, it's not the language that you speak that's important. It's the language that you live that's important. And what I haven't told you about Grady is that he was born with polio. Never jumped, never ran. And lived a life focused on the, one of the most genuinely happy people that I've ever met because he got happiness backwards. Because his life was kingdom focused. And so the result of a kingdom focused life over the long term, not in every situation, not in every moment, but the long term ramifications, the long arc of a kingdom life is that we gain happiness backwards. 
we see it in Jesus's life over and over and over again. I would offer you, I would say that Jesus was um, the most genuinely happy person that probably has ever lived. The night before Jesus goes to the cross, he prays what I believe is the greatest prayer in all the Bible. Now, I know there's debate about how you want to slice that up. Some people think it's the Lord's Prayer. Some people think it's Paul's prayers in Colossians and Ephesians. From my perspective, the greatest prayer in all the scriptures, John chapter 17, Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before he is headed to the cross. He knows what's coming. He knows what's in front of him. You remember those five things I gave you at the beginning of the message? We can just run through those again. Did Jesus practice gratitude? You think about his high priestly prayer. He looks up at his heavenly father. He says, all, all I have is yours and all that you have is mine. Was he, was he relationally connected? He said, yes, the, the people, the ones that you have given to me, God, fill them up to the full measure, the full measure of joy. Was he, was he mindful? He said, Father, live in the present. Father, the hour, the hour has come that I might glorify you. Was he resilient? He said, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Did he have a purpose? Did he have a mission? That the world may know that you have sent me, that I am here, Father, to glorify you by finishing the work that you have given me to do. What was the work that he was about to go to the cross to die as our substitutionary atonement and simultaneously give us victory over the sin, death, hell, and the grave in our lives to be miraculously resurrected, to offer you and I new life so that it can be a faith that we clutch onto, that we hold onto. Yes, we gain it backwards. Yes, it's different than what we think of in our own humanity. It's possible, not normal, but it's certainly not inevitable either. So today, as we wrap up the service, we're gonna sing a brand new song about, I don't know, five or six weeks ago on Sunday afternoon after church, Angie and I had been out doing a couple of ministry things and we knew uh, that the students were getting ready to have student group on Sunday night. So we came in for rehearsal. It's the first time I'd ever heard um, this particular song. It talks about what you and I don't need is just a Sunday afternoon faith, but rather what we need is a Monday morning faith. Hell's not scared. There's a great line in the song. Hell's not scared of a Sunday faith, right? But one that works Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday as you and I are invested in the goodness and the grace of God and the gospel good news that he um, has given to us, that we become the kinds of people who root our lives in consistent joy and gladness. So I'm gonna pray um, for us. And after I pray, we're gonna sing and we're gonna worship together our God who commands us to be glad. Let's pray. God, this morning, there's such a variety of emotions in and around uh, the room. Lord, there are folks who are here who are in the middle of a season of lament. There are folks who are in here, uh, God, today, who are living out this sense of, of gladness, of, of happiness, and God, all in between those kinds of things. People who are in a variety of situations and circumstances inside of the context of, of human life and relationships. But God, the thing that supersedes over all of that is your goodness, 
your kindness, your love in our lives. And God, what we are praying for, hoping for, dreaming for is a faith that doesn't just work today, but rather, God, a faith that works every day of the week. One that doesn't just come to glorify you on Sunday, but wants to glorify you just as much on Monday. Thank you for being an everyday Savior. In your name we pray. Amen.